Good evening, Living Truth. Good evening. Turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 8. We're going to pick it up where Pastor Michael left off in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Where again, we're going to be in Hebrews 11, verse 8. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to give you some background. I love background. I think without a really comprehensive understanding of the background of who the two main characters are in this story, without that background, it won't make a lot of sense. And actually, you can't glean all that you need to out of it. So the two people we're going to be discussing tonight are Abram, whose name gets changed to Abraham, and Sarai, whose name gets changed to Sarah. And we're going to be talking quite a bit about those two, and particularly looking at them through the lens of faith. And so join me as we pray, and we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, Dad, you're so good. You are faithful. You are true. You are the one that created something out of nothing and made the dead to rise. And so it's to you we give our full attention. It's you we come to praise and worship and to, to hear from. So give us, please, ears to hear, a heart of good soil to receive. And we just commit this time to you and thank you that you're with us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the background starts with this. What is that? It's the ark. And specifically, whose ark is it? It's Noah's ark. The story of Abraham and Sarah has to start here with the ark. You have to understand a little bit of their lineage. You have to understand about the family they come from and the area they come from and their own unique circumstances to understand what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11. So I'm going to give you a very quick family tree. We know that there was Noah... He had a son named Shem, he's got another son named Ham, and his third son named Japheth. And it was these four men with their four wives, the total of eight of them were the entire human population on board the ark. And there were two of every kind of animal, but those eight individuals were what started it all at the ark. We're going to follow just the line of Shem, that's why I put him in the middle. Shem has a son, this is the hardest name we're going to come across today, it's Arpakshad, Arpakshad is the son of Shem, and we're going to go down now nine more generations, and we're just going to follow this particular son line. He does have other sons and daughters we're not going to talk about, so I put that off to the side. It's kind of clumped it together, other sons and daughters. Everybody down Shem's line will have other sons and daughters besides the main line we're going to look at, but just focus on the middle line for a moment. Arpakshad had Shelah, Shelah had Eber, Eber had Peleg, Peleg had Riu, Ryu had Sereg, Sereg had the first of two Nahors, Nahor had Terah, and Terah is going to be the father of Abraham. Okay, so hopefully I don't lose you yet. Abraham, Terah had a bunch of brothers. He had two brothers. The first is Haran, and then you have Nahor. And I might mess up Haran's name a bunch because I referred to it as Haran and Haran and Haran for many years, and I thought, I'm just going to Google that. I should never have done it. Found out it's properly pronounced Haran, which is very hard for me to say, but uh, I'm going to try. So if I mix it up, there are a couple other players you have to know about. Haran's going to have a son named Lot. That's why he's called the nephew of Abraham. And Abraham, as we know, gets married to Sarah, and they beget a child named Isaac. And if you take away the fluff of all the other sons and daughters, the line looks pretty clean. Ten generations from Shem down to Abraham. Now, you're going to see here a couple things. One, don't get confused by the fact that there are two Nahors. Abraham's grandpa is named Nahor. And then when they had, Terah had a son, he said, hey, grandpa's got a, dad's got a really cool name. Let's pass that name on to my kid. And so there's another Nahor. Other thing I want you to get confused about is that this Haran is also the name of a city. Now, whether the child was named after the city or the city was named after the child, don't really know. It doesn't really matter. But you're going to see Haran named as both a place and a person. So I tell you that now so you won't be confused. Like, what do you mean they arrived at Haran? And what do you mean Haran was dead? How can you have those things happen? It will make sense in a little bit. So we're going to read a couple of verses, key passages in the book of Genesis. You can flip there if you want. I'm going to have them up behind me. Just uh, if you keep your finger in Hebrews, it'll probably go a little bit faster. So bear with me as we get a little bit of background information in Genesis about Abraham and Sarah, which again will shine light and make more sense in Hebrews, okay? I'm going to be in Genesis 11 to start, just these five, six verses. Genesis 11:27 says, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. 
Again, that's Abraham's dad. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. That should make sense to us now. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Lot's dad just died. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's a key piece of information you're going to need as we get into Hebrews. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his, his son, Abram's wife, and they, together as a family, again, grandpa down to uh, nephew, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. So they went as far as, not the person, the place, Haran, and settled there. And we'll look at that geography in a second, because that's going to matter too. In Genesis, um, and the days of Terah, excuse me, last verse, were 205 years, and Terah died in that city named Haran. So those details are going to matter. They're going to come back in a little bit. But you heard a couple of places mentioned. You heard Ur of the Chaldeans and the place called Haran. And you heard of the land of Canaan. And maybe if you're scanning the picture very quickly, you'll see a couple of those names. And we'll talk about this path and what's going on in a little bit. But whenever I see a map like this, I, it's kind of like when I'm driving with Apple Maps or Waze and it, you, it pins you where you are. And you ever have to like pinch the map in a bunch so you can zoom out way much to find out like, oh, that's where I am. I'm going to do the same thing just for a moment, okay? Because I don't really understand sometimes. I look at these maps and I'm like, where am I? So I'm going to zoom out and I pinched way out. Like here's the globe, okay? You can see there you have the continent of Africa. And just above that, you're going to see that little red dot. That is in the land that's currently called Iraq, so there you have the, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. I, I call it like the big boot. It looks like a boot. Do you see the boot? Looks like a boot, okay. We're talking about the area that's that boot. Now, for some people like me, you, I'm actually not pinched in far enough because I'm like, well, where am I on this map? I'm not on this map. Where is this in relation to us here in the States? That's where it's located relative to us. The red dot is where we're talking about. We are over here, Southern California, Inland Empire, City of Corona. So literally, if you were to just unfurl the map, we'd be on the far parts. But if you wrap it around the map again, we're on the opposite side of this. Everybody feel like they understand where we are now? So now I'm going to zoom back in. So now we're over here, back in the boot. We're back over here at the top of the boot. And that red dot previously was Ur. It's here. And they're going to refer to, some of these passages will refer to the river. That river that they're on, the river that they're going to leave is the river Euphrates. It's a river that starts at the Persian Gulf and just flows inland. And they travel that river. Again, it said that Terah, he passed away in the city called Haran, which is up north there. And then Abram from there, Abraham, uh, journeyed south down to the land of Canaan. The other parts of the detail this map shows that he goes into a place called Zoan in Egypt and he comes back to Hebron. Those aren't relevant to our story. They are relevant, but not to our, our story tonight. So just understand a couple of these locations and I'm explain more about these in just a little bit. But knowing that his homeland is in a place called Ur matters. And so we're going to read just a couple more quick passages out of Genesis to get the full understanding of this background. Genesis 12, 1 through 5 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, again, Lot was orphaned at this point. His father had passed. That's why he's joined up to his uncle. And all their possessions, which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, he had acquired servants, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So now you understand a little bit again. He started off in Ur, he went over to Haran, and then he came down to Canaan. And that's all that we need to understand for what we're doing tonight. 
There's actually a passage, very interestingly, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, just before he gets stoned, is giving his testimony to the scribes and the Pharisees who are there to stone him. And Stephen has some insights that aren't actually shared in Genesis about this story. So it's pretty exciting to see this, just again, for, to get more background on what's going on. In Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that first martyr Stephen says, the high priest said, hey, are these things so, these false accusations that, that are being brought against Stephen? And Stephen said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that's where Ur is, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, he's not leaving behind his wife and his nephew. He's taking them, the rest of the relatives. He's leaving behind all that family tree that was centered in Mesopotamia in the land of Ur. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child... He promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So some big details. And again, I want to turn to one last, uh, maybe second to last in Genesis 15. We'll read this very quickly. Again, more background about who Abram is and what's going on. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He's saying, what's the point, Lord, of giving me anything? I'm an old man. I have no one to, which to pass this down to. Uh, my wife is barren. We've been trying to have kids for 50 plus years. And there was a servant that was born in my house. We kind of adopted this kid, Eliezer, and we've, we've just you know, willed that our stuff would go to him, but he's not from my line. Well, so what's it really matter if you give me stuff? Abram said, since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He's getting a promise at the age of 75, somewhere between 75 and 100 years old. You're going to have a baby. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And we're going to focus on this verse here. It says, now look toward the heaven and count the stars. If you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Now, I, I understood this, and I was talking to my kids about this verse, and I realized they were born and raised in Southern California. And you know what it looks like when they look outside at night to the sky? They see like five stars. And I can imagine from your 21st century Southern California perspective, that doesn't seem like that big of a promise. How many stars are you counting? And he's like, I want to do five, 12. Oh, really clear night, 15. Like there's not a lot. And so understand this. I'm going to give you my perspective growing up, and I'm just going to share my perspective to tell you that they have different perspectives on this understanding. But we're going to look ultimately at Abraham's perspective of that particular promise of his descendants. Again, all this matters in relevance to Hebrews chapter 11. My perspective of the stars comes from growing up here. Grew up on this little place in the middle of nowhere, the island chain of Hawaii. If you were to pinch out again, pinch out, I am there like this little, little, tiny thing. Here you are and I are now, that 2,000 miles away in the speck of land, roughly 40, 50 miles at its longest point on my island. Can you imagine that? 45, 50 miles long, 20 miles wide. That's where I grew up on. That's all I knew for 18 years. That was it. And again, zooming in a little bit, if you were to look here, I lived on this island, the island of Oahu. I lived specifically on that southeasternmost tip of the island, very, very far away from everything. And what makes that part of the island unique, and I lived right there. That's my exact house. Google Earth is pretty amazing. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. You can see there's a little bit of a crater just to the right of my house. That is Cocoa Head Crater. 
I lived, this little, this little speck right here, there was a crater, an actual mountain range, a dormant volcano was behind my house and it went straight up to the sky. Like it was covered in clouds a lot. It was straight up. So from behind me, I have a mountain range right up against my house. And in front of me, there is nothing but absolute ocean if I look towards the other way. I grew up in what was seemingly one of the pitchest black places like you can imagine. There's just, this is in the 80s, there's not a lot of light. It's before your Google Homes and Alexas are swirling around all the time, right? There's not a lot of light. So I kid you not, my, my roof was flat on my house. When I looked up and I would lay on that roof at night, the stars, I'm not kidding you, looked like that. It was an absolute beautiful thing. I took no appreciation of it for it growing up. I got saved and came to the Lord when I was 15 years old. I remember it clearly at, time, at one point in time, I was either 16 or 17 years old. I'd snuck up on my roof. It was late at night. It was a moonless night. And I went up there, and I remember just being as a believer. And I remember at some point in the last quarter or, or six months, someone had talked about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And I, I remember I, I cried. I weeped like a baby, and I kind of got it. I hadn't really appreciated it. I hadn't understood it. I hadn't really looked up and just seen the majesty of God in that way before. And I remember, you know, we'd, we'd joke, oh, the Milky Way and things. And I didn't realize that those aren't things that people see all the time. Um, and that the countless, like when you start counting stars, like you get to 30 and you're like, this is pointless. Like there's no way. Because then your field of view is here. And then you realize you can count all of your field of view, but then there's like more fields of view, like everywhere that you look and the stars just don't stop. And so as, as I think, as amazing and awestruck as I was at this, understand this, please, that Abraham's understanding of this verse is going to be unique to him. And here's why, okay? When God tells him, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be, you have to get one more piece of information about Abraham to understand why that might be so unique to him. Joshua chapter 24 gives even a little bit more detail that some of Genesis doesn't give. Joshua 24 verses one through three says, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders and he called the judges and the officers and they, everybody came basically before God to hear from Joshua. And Joshua said to the peoples, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. That's that Euphrates river we talked about. Namely, Terah. Again, they take it back to Abraham's dad. The father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. It's this little nugget right there, understanding that Abraham came from a land where he personally and his family just a handful of generations after the flood were worshiping other gods. They were absolute pagans. They worshiped other gods. And what did that look like? We actually have in the land of Ur, in Iraq today, we have some very interesting ruins. And I wanted to share this picture with you today. This is a ziggurat. Not a cigarette, but a ziggurat. This is a temple. This is a temple that was built around 2000 B.C., the time of Abraham, in the land of Ur, right in his, this is literally his hometown church, if you'll call it that, his temple, where sacrifices were made, specifically the sacrifices were made to the moon god. His hometown god was the moon god. No doubt part of Abraham's family's rituals would involve going out every night, looking up to the sky and worshiping the big glowing ball. Sometimes it's a sliver, sometimes it's a half, sometimes it's full, sometimes it's not there. They would interpret that as different things and they would worship the moon. And so can you imagine for a second, Abraham in his upbringing of 75 years of life, every night going out, looking up to the sky and worshiping this creation up there, focusing so much as I look at these bright lights, focusing so much on that singular bright light before a promise from the creator of the universe comes and says, Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants 
as numerous as the stars in the sky. You ever seen a picture like a camera that changes focus? You're so focused on this one thing. And then I imagine for the first time in Abraham's life, he literally just kind of like, that fell out of focus. And all of a sudden, the stars in the firmament became his focus. And he must've just been like, whoa, have I been missing the big picture? He came encounter with a God who met him where he's at in his astrological worship and loving. God says, I'm gonna use that illustration that you grew up with, that you are intertwined with in your family and your culture to give you a, a, an analogy of how I'm gonna bless you. And it just takes it all out of focus for him and puts it in focus for him. Do you know what I mean? And so we understand that a ziggurat, like this thing's huge. That's, that's today. It was um, in 600 or so uh, AD, they did like some remodeling to it, but like it's, it's pretty much always looked like this for 4,000 years. That's where he came from. And can you imagine the stars when he looked? This was like the time of campfires and candlesticks and glowing things. And then they all got put out at night and it was pitch black and there's no lights from the city that are glowing and ruining it. Like this was in the time of you could see everything. Our God is an awesome God. And I love how he comes down, how he speaks to Abraham right where he's at. And so that being said, we're going to pick it up now in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If I ever switch a version, I think there's one place. I'll show you that verse in the NIV. Otherwise, we're going to be in NASB. And we pick it up in verse 8. Hebrews 11:8 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, son and grandson, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, like things that they're exiles and strangers, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country for which they went out, they'd have probably had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. We're going to break it down just line by line, show some illustrations for these things. We'll take it in the first verse, verse 8, to, to help make sense of this. And what we're really going to be doing is looking at these two lives and faith. It's the hall of faith. They're in it. What is it that Abraham and Sarah have? How is it that they live their lives in a way that we can learn something and apply to us about a life of faith? Because I'll tell you now, and I'll drop it, I want to live the life of faith that Abraham and Sarah had. And there are things that they do and perspectives that they have that are keys to unlocking an amazing faith. And so we read that first verse in verse eight. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The first word that caught me when reading through this was by faith, Abraham, when he was called. I think sometimes as Christians, we forget that, but do you realize that we have a God who calls? Not necessarily to think of phones, like, you know, pick up the bat phone and call on us like that. It's not that kind of call. But we have a God 
that in a very unique and special way absolutely calls. And there's something that he's called all of us to, and there's something that he may be calling us to do, and we'll look at that. Romans 1, verses 1 through 7 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and talk about a man who was called. This guy was knocked off a horse in his way to go murder Christians. He was called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, longest sentence ever, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 talks about another calling of God. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you, New Testament believers, are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So understand that we are first of all dealing with a God who calls. And when he calls, he calls, and specifically to Abram, he has a call to go. Abraham, I want you to go but I'm not telling you where you're going to go. Can you imagine that for a second? Abraham was told to go out from his land, but he wasn't told where he was going to go. Again, this is a married man. This isn't a bachelor. He's like, I'm going to pick up and go. Can you imagine that conversation with your wife? He says, hey, hon, we got to like pick up all our stuff and, and, you know, and, and the servants and all our belongings and everything, and, and, and we have to move. And she's for sure like, oh, okay, hon, oh, sure, Abe, where, where are we going? I don't know. But, but we have to go. Um, okay, any, any specific direction? I, no real idea. I trust that the guy who told me to go will tell me eventually where to go, but we just got to go. So pack up and go. And by faith, he went. I love examining the faith of Abraham but I'm really excited just to see what is it that he did? How do you, how do you have that kind of faith? Because I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm in sales. That's my day job. I, I'm, I'm decent. I can talk to people about you know, landscape maintenance, and I do a decent job at that. But I can't talk my wife into going and not telling her where we're going and picking up our stuff and just going. Like that kind of faith to be able to say, you got to, like, we're going. I, I don't, I wouldn't even start that conversation. I don't feel like I've got that gift. So I wonder, how is it that he has the faith to go? Would you go? Would you go if God calls? Not just calls you maybe to go to an unknown. What if he told you where to go? Would you go? How many of us think that we need to have the full picture of God's plan before we feel comfortable enough to go. It's more like, hey, God, tell me where you want me to go, and then I'll consider going. I'll use my free will to say yes or no to that. How many of us, if God says go, we just go? Something to think about as we continue on. I mean, the Bible gives us great promises of assurance. The Bible tells us, look, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your path. So just trust in the Lord. I find that sometimes easier to remember than to apply. Am I alone in that? Psalm 119, 105 says, well, you just turned to your Bible. The Bible says, dear word, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
God's word is clear so often in my life, and yet I still struggle with the faith to apply it, to believe it. Am I alone in that? Having and knowing the promises of God isn't necessarily enough to unlock the faith to trust in those promises. You want to have those. Verses like this should be the anchor of our souls. They should be the things that we have memorized and apply and the situation arises and we repeat them back and we pray over them, but they are a part. Because the promise, as we're going to see, is not the most important thing. I'm going to unlock that for you today. The promise of God is not the most important thing. We're going to read on to see what else we need to unlock faith besides just the promises of God. And so we read that verse again. He was called, not knowing where to go. Verse 9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. This is one part of the key to unlock this. Understand that Abraham, by faith he lived. First it was by faith he would go. Now by faith he lives. What does that mean by faith he lives? Understand this, what it means to live the life of faith. There's a couple of illustrations here in the Bible I want to show you that I think help unlock this. A life of faith is more often an everyday walking by faith than a singular momentous occasion or grand singular moment of faith. What does that mean? It's a, a life of faith as opposed to one huge moment. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith. The grand moments of faith, those kind of moments where when you get thrown into the lion's den, you're trusting the Lord. The kind of moments that when the guy cranks up the furnace and he throws you in there with your buddies, that kind of momentous faith is not found in the moment. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says, when Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel 6.10 says, Now when Daniel knew the document was signed, the document that said you had to bow down to the golden statue, right? You can't worship anything else. Daniel entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had, worship, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel and his friends had made up their mind. Their walk of faith was not found the moment the cave door was open, the lions are down there roaring, and he's about to go, and he's like, oh, Lord, give me the faith. He'd already purposed. I'm walking with God to the very end. Lord, I am yours, and you are mine, and we're together in this. He purposed. And when they make a law saying you can't pray anymore. He did not think, wow, that's a really difficult law. Let me just, I, I need the faith to just overcome this really heinous law. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do what I've always been doing. You can make whatever laws you want. It's not going to stop me from my relationship with my God. I'm going to get on my knees every day, three times a day, and I'm going to pray. He had walked by faith. And it's that living by faith that makes it sometimes so easy when those moments where you really need faith. Ephesians 2.10, talk about a life lived walking by faith. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we should just walk in them a life of faith, a life of good works, a life just where God's like, just, it's your day-to-day. -day. It's your walking with the Lord. That's how you walk by faith and not by sight. We turn back to Hebrews, and it says here, I love this verse, you know, he's an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, and he dwelled in tents. Isaac and Jacob, his family, fellow heirs of the same promise, uh, Understand this. At one point, you know that he's with Lot. Him and Lot separate. That's a whole other story from the time. Him and Lot separate, and Lot takes the valleys. And so that means that um, Abraham took the mountaintops, okay? So Abraham, 
Lot's in the valleys. Abraham takes the high ground. God takes Abraham up on a journey to one of the high ground spots. And he says, Abraham, go stand up there. And Abraham stands up there. And he tells Abraham, I want you to look in every cardinal. I want you to look north and south and east and west. Look everywhere. Cast your eyes as far as you can see. And Abraham's like, okay, God, I'm looking around. I see it all. And God says, that's all yours. I created it. I own it. I am going to give you as far as your eye can see. That is your land. How big is the land of Israel, the promised land of God? It's big. It's as far as he can see in every single direction. God's like, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. And so you know what he does after he gets that? God's, he's like, cool. Can I, can I place my tent over there? Can I put my tent in that little? You own all of, what are you doing? And am I, I'm like, I'm putting the pool here. The gym's going there. The basketball court's there. The, I'm like, I got real estate for days. I got real estate for millennia. And he's like, I want my tent to go over there. I looked at that. I'm like, dude, God just gave you the best land. And if he looked at the people already in the land, he looked at the neighbors around, like they're building cities and kingdoms and ziggurats and other these great monuments and structures. And he's like, I'm cool with my tent. Okay, why? Why are you cool with your tent, bro? That's, that's a little interesting. Well, he lived with a light touch on the earth. Abraham did not look to set up those big cities or establish his own kingdom here on earth. Even though he was now the rightful owner of the land, the rightful owner gave it to him, making him the rightful owner. By faith, he kept his sights set on God's coming kingdom. What's that mean? For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's looking for the city. What is that? Where do you get the city from? He's, he's, is he wandering on in a tent in this vast expansion of land, literally looking for a city? Absolutely not. He could have built his own city if he wanted to have a city. What does that mean he's looking for a city whose architect? Because every city on the land right then had an architect and builder from earth. Every structure that was built at that time had something that was built by man. So he's not looking for an earthly structure. He's got his eyes fixed elsewhere. Where is that? He's looking at a place which is to come. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, describes it as this. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Okay, a couple places talking about a city to come. What's that look like? Well, we have a citizenship to the city. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21a. I learned this verse when I was 15 in the NIV, and it's just stuck with me. It's one of my favorite verses of all time. So anytime I say it in a different verse, the version doesn't make any sense, so I'm going to say it to you in NIV. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I say that again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will one day transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. The chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, literally almost the entire chapter is the breakdown of what this city looks like. I'm going to tell you first how the city functions, and you can read on after verse 4 if you want to see what it looks like on actual streets and the walls and the structures. Please feel free to read on in chapter 21. But I'm going to read these four verses. John describes, And I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. Understand this, the Bible makes it really clear that the earth and the heaven that we live in, the heaven being the sky, the clouds, the moon, the stars, all that, that one day God, like a cloak, folds it up. He takes the four corners of the blackness of the sky and just says, whoop, 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 and it's done. We talk about light years apart and millions of light years. Of, God's like, yeah, it's cool. Like, whoop, whoop, like a napkin. He's like, it's done. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he, this is the best part, will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, 
and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no longer, there'll no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's like that stuff that's part of the old earth. It's, it's history, it's gone. Abraham had his eyes fixed here. He said, you know what? If God's plan is to one day bring about a Messiah who will one day, yes, establish a throne and a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, okay, great. But eventually your plan, God, is to just... But you've got something better coming, a heavenly kingdom where you and I will be. At that point, if you've got your eyes and your mind fixed there, everything down here seems to pale in comparison. You stop worrying about how your investments are doing and how this is going and whether or not you won or lost this game. Those things just like, dude, I'm a citizen up there. This stuff, just give me my tent, man. I'm good. He saw this by faith. This wasn't written yet. God no doubt told him about it. God, no doubt, revealed it to him. But he had it by faith. He knew. He knew where to fix his eyes. So he was looking for the city, looking with the eyes of his heart, not looking around here on earth, but fixing his eyes to heaven, where that city whose architect and builder is God. We switch gears now, and it says in verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Again, it talked about how she was barren. She had not had a child. Even beyond the proper time of life, past what we would call those fertile years, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, I love the verbs here that talk about faithing. By faith, Sarah received. It's really important when you talk about an avenue of faith, the receiving By faith, understand, please, that's how we receive from God. What things can we receive by God? And this is absolutely not an exhaustive list. Um, I picked maybe a a handful of things that we can receive receive from God by faith. First, and perhaps most importantly, we can receive salvation by faith. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You receive that promise by faith. You can receive victory over sin and temptation by faith. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the promise says that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. It means you're not the only one going through this. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but the temptation will provide the way of escape so you can endure it or stand up under it. You can bear the weight of it and just say No. A couple more things you can receive by faith. You can receive the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible makes it very clear in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can receive wisdom. Man, I find myself not knowing what to do quite often. The Bible says in James 1, 5, and 6, but if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And the promise is it will be given to him. Ask God if you don't know what to do. And the Bible says he will give you the wisdom. But you must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Two more things you receive by faith. You can receive the fact that God meets all your needs. This was a last-minute addition. Um, by faith, I put this in, knowing someone needed to hear this verse. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you can receive rest. Matthew 11.28.29 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, of rest is cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. These promises of God, we can receive by faith. Not an exhaustive list. You can receive, gosh, peace. You can receive, I mean, the list goes on and on again. Uh, by no means list, but understand that the way in which we receive promises of God is through the avenue of faith. And we see that here with Sarah and her receiving. But the receiving of faith is easy in a sense, but there's something that she does that makes it easy. And so I really, if I'm focusing on anything tonight, it's on this part of the, the, the section that we're looking at. It says that she considered him faithful who had promised. She did not focus on the promise. She focused on the promise maker. There's a huge difference because faith is believing that he who promises is actually faithful to fulfill the promise because the promise is only good as the promise maker right? I can promise all of you I'll give you a million dollars after the service is over. That promise is bogus because I can't keep that promise. Does that make sense? It means absolutely nothing if I make it. I don't have a million dollars to give. I don't have a fraction of that to give. No. So the promise is only as good as the promise maker. And that's what she's saying. That's what she's focusing on. She's like, well, this promise, let me examine who it's coming from. You see, faith True faith embraces the character and nature of God as declared in his word. And honestly, that's what we do here. If you've come tonight from a Wednesday night, understand that we come here to do the gathering of God's word. Like we explore together the promises of God and examine the nature of God. He makes the promise, but let's dig deep. Let's look at the testimonies to show that he is in fact faithful to fulfill that promise. Because a list of promises without knowing the promise maker is worthless. So that's what we do here. We dig in. So let's look at it for a second together. How has God shown us that he is worthy to be trusted to fulfill those promises? How has he revealed himself to us through his word to be worthy to believe his promises? And I do this quickly couple things that scripture reveals about the nature of God. First and most evidently, God is love. The Bible says clearly in 1 John 4, 8, 9, it says, the one who does not love, that guy doesn't know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Romans 5, 8 explains the God of love, the God of love like this. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Understand another nature of God. God doesn't lie. Numbers 23, 19, God reveals that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not do it? Has he spoken and not made it good? Those are two rhetorical no's. Has God ever said one thing and not done it? Has he said this and yet done that? The Bible says no. God has said it and he has done it. He's not a man that he should lie. Understand that the Bible explains that God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. 2 Corinthians 1.18 says, but as God is faithful... Our word to you is not yes and no. He's saying, God says it this way, so our, our message to you is not this or that, or maybe it's Jesus. He says, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no waffling, but yes in him. He's saying the promises we're talking to you about in the Old Testament are yes in Christ. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Ever hear someone say the promises of God are yes and amen? What does that mean? The promises of God are yes and amen. What does that mean? The promises of God, do they point to Jesus? Are Jesus fulfilling all those promises? Yes. What's our response to that? Amen. So be it. Let it be done. Yes, it's in Jesus. 
Yes and amen. This is my favorite here. It says, God's a promise-making and promise-keeping God. That's how he declares himself to us. Joshua 23, 14 says, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. He's like, I'm perishing. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. Not one word has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. God made promises to them. He fulfilled them. Not a single word ever failed, and it never will. So when she considered him faithful who had promised, she's looking at the promise maker before looking at the promise. Verse 12 says, therefore, there was born even of one man, this is Abraham, and him as good as dead. Whoa means he's really, really, really old and on death's doorstep. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Again, how old are we talking? Genesis 21.5 says, Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. He lived to 175, but he's well past childbearing years. He's 100 years old. And it's somewhat metaphoric, poetic language that him as good as dead. But he's saying it's an old man and yet he was promised many as the stars in the sky and as innumerable as the sand by the seashore from this old guy who and his wife who seemingly can't bear it all god's like i'm going to make it i'm going to make a promise to you in verse 13 this is fascinating it says all these these two all these they died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What does that mean, that they died in faith without receiving the promises? Again, what do you mean? He received the land. He went to the promised land. Right, but don't forget, he didn't value the land. He knew the promised land was symbolic one day of the promised land, the promise of heaven, the hope of heaven, that the Messiah was coming to bring us back to him to fellowship in heaven forever, not on this fallen, cursed, thorn-ridden ground here on earth. He's like, I've got, God's like, I got a heaven waiting for you. And so he fixed his eyes there. He never received that promise on this life, on this earth, but he sure did see it. He saw it from afar off, but he saw the new Jerusalem. He saw the heavenly city. He saw where his citizenship was and he welcomed it. And he confessed every day, I'm, I'm just passing through. I'm a sojourner, he would say. I'm a pilgrim. I'm literally temporarily here. It's a blink of an eye compared to the eternity in heaven is what he's thinking. And for those who say such things, those who say that this is not my home, I'm just passing through, it's clear that they are seeking a country of their own. That word country, I love it. It's the word, uh, in the Greek, it's the word, um, the patris. And we get the word like paternal, uh, paternity. It means really um, your fatherland. It means your homeland. There's a couple, uh, two versions of the Bible actually will, if you're reading that same verse there in verse 14, it'll say, go into your homeland. But fatherland's a really good translation. It's going to the home of your father with a capital F. He's not looking here Seeking a country, he's seeking those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a homeland, a fatherland of their own. And hey, when they said looking for a homeland, verse 15 says they're not thinking about the country that they came out from. He's not saying, I'm looking for my fatherland like Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm not looking at the land of Terah all the way back to uh, Noah, them. I'm not talking about that fatherland. I could have returned there if I wanted to, it says. If you thought I was talking about that land, I could have gone back there. I don't want to go back there. Why? Verse 16 says, but as it is, Abraham and Sarah desire a better country, a better homeland, a better fatherland. That is, I love this, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. 
I close in this passage, Romans 14. I'm just going to read these couple verses, like nine, 10 verses. We'll call it a night. Romans 4 explains it like this, and I think captivates the promise, the promise maker, Abraham, all of it together in one beautiful bundle. Romans 4 says this. For this reason, it's by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, talking about salvation, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it's written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed. It means against all odds, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Again, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, again, 100 years old, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what, hap- that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe by faith in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. What it's saying here is this, and I highlight it for you. He believed God, the one, because he focused all of this focus on who the promise maker is, the one who gives life to the dead nobody else does that. And the one who calls into being that which does not exist. Ex nihilo, as you might say, the one who created something out of nothing. There's just one who does that. He's saying, the creator of the universe. Yeah, you can do that. The promises you're giving me are, you're basically, he's saying, you're going to create something. My wife and I aren't having, you, you created something out of nothing here. If you, if you did that with the heavens and the earth, this child will be nothing for you. I, got, I can believe that promise, sure. He looked at the promise maker to understand that that promise would be easy. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And so I leave you just these questions. We have Abraham and Sarah's reaction of faith to the promises of God. Here's your question for the night to leave you with. What has God called you to do? And what are the promises that God has for you? And as you examine those promises, either through his word or perhaps God reveals things to you as he did to, he did to Samuel in a dream. He did to in a blinding light to Saul on a horse. He spoke here through angels to Mary. However it is that God wants to make personally revealed to you or as he promises, he reveals absolutely through the promises of his word. What has God called you to do? What are the promises that God has for you? And I encourage you in this. In those times when those promises seem like when your feelings don't line up with the promise, when your circumstances don't line up with the promise, that you'd focus that heart of yours back to the promise maker. And you realize, you know what? That's not so crazy after all. A baby from a 100-year-old and a woman who's, that, but you're the God who created something out of nothing. But you're the God that raises the dead. That, where, thank you, Lord. Take my focus back to that. Amen? Focus on the promise maker next time you come across the promise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that word of encouragement. I, I know I struggle personally sometimes. I see a promise, like trust in you with all my heart, lean not my own understanding, acknowledge my ways, acknowledge you, and just trust that you'll direct my path. 
I don't know why I doubt that sometimes. I don't know why I doubt, Lord, your word that says you're gonna work all things together for my good because I love you. I look at a situation, I wonder, doesn't look good. It's because I look at the circumstance, Lord. I look at the world around me and I, I take my eyes off of you, the one who raised the dead and created the heaven and the earth. And so fix our eyes on you. Fix our heart on you. The next time the storms come, and even just in the day-to-day walking by faith, fix our eyes on you, the one who's the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who made us and saved us and sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Fix our heart on you before we come and look at your promises. So thank you, Lord, for that encouragement. We love you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.